All right. James, do you have anyone there? Eleanor's not going to be there. She's sick. But. Well, that's somebody. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and get started. And what am I doing? Praying. I'll pray, then we will jump in. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for another day, another opportunity to, to grow in our knowledge of, of your word and our love for your word and our love for you. Um, pray as we continue to think about the, the several themes and acts that you have provided for us to learn about, that you would um, grow our understanding of acts as a whole and that we would um, love and cherish this book and that as we think about the, the early church's witness of your, of your life-giving presence and your saving work, that we would likewise be faithful in, in sharing and proclaiming the gospel and, and how eternal life is only found in you. There is no other avenue to, to saving faith, to eternal life, than through faith in Jesus. And so we pray that we would be faithful to that message, guard us from error, and um, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are uh, going to jump back into our series that we're just about finished with through our theological study of the book of Acts. We have two more lessons to go this week, and then um, next week will be the final lesson, Lord willing. It's going to be a conclusion type of chapter where we're going to just hopefully bring everything home and get a little bit more practical on kind of these theological themes, how they, they work out in the life of the Christian. But this week we're going to think about the seventh and final theme that Schreiner argues is prominent in the book of Acts, and it's the theme of witnessing. It's the theme of witnessing or to be a witness, and specifically to be a witness of Christ. And as we'll see, witnessing is very closely related to what we call in our modern context um, missions and, and evangelism even. So when you hear the word witnessing, it may be helpful to have those two um, categories in your mind. Um, although they're, they're not 100% the, the same things. Now, if you've been following along in this study or, or reading the book at home, then it should not surprise you that witnessing, to be a witness, would be a central theme in Acts, mainly because of this, this verse that we keep coming back to. Can anyone take a guess of the verse I'm going about to say? The first very key verse in the structure of the book. Oh, yeah, Devin's on fire. Acts 1.8. I think it's mentioned in just about every chapter of Shriner's book. And it's a central key verse to understanding the, the whole of Acts, especially in regards to the structure of the book. And we read there the words of Jesus. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so Shriner and, and I have argued that this verse functions as a table of contents of sorts for the, for the rest of the book of Acts, 
So everything is structured in, in the narrative of Acts around these locations. The disciples, the apostles are to be a witness of Jesus in all of these different locales, in these different locations. And as the narrative unfolds, that is exactly what we see occur. It's what we see take place. So witnessing, to be a witness, is crucial. It's extremely important in Acts. But as we've been reading the book and going through this study, I think it should be known by now, one of the, the things I like about this study and this book, or I'd say the key contributions that Schreiner makes with the thesis of his book is that he just doesn't assume the foundational truths that, that necessarily precede witnessing. The foundational theological doctrines or truths that, that must come before witnessing, which is the, the other themes and truths that, that he's been tracing throughout the book. So it's helpful and I think even necessary to think about the, like we have been, the the logical ordering of the narrative account that Luke's given to us, recorded for us in Acts, how there's a, 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 a coherent theological system, logically consistent, which means the theme of witnessing to the ends of the earth does not occur unless the Father has planned it, unless the Christ, the, the, the Son of God, is exalted in the heavens and the Spirit is poured out to proclaim the Word of God and the message of salvation, which, which just establishes the church. All of those things must, must logically precede the witnessing of the apostle to the ends of the earth. Although I would say witnessing is very closely related to the word of God and the message of salvation. Um, Schreiner puts it another way in the book that may be helpful to think about. He says, mission... Mission cannot occur unless God gathers and compels his people. Or he might say that. He, it's the opposite, not the opposite. He says, mission cannot occur unless God compels and gathers his people. Right? So the point here is that, yes, witnessing is, is massive. It's a crucial theme in the book of Acts. It's a central theme in Acts. But we need to understand in our theology of Acts that that. To witness, witnessing is built on the foundation of these other doctrines, of these other truths, which I think just makes sense. Now, it's also true that there's really no other New Testament book that, that narrates the spread of the gospel through the witness of the apostles other than the book of Acts, or I'd say more than the book of Acts. So this theme of witnessing in Acts is you could say, I, I would say it's uniquely important, or, or key, it's a key theme because Acts is the primary location, it's the primary place in the New Testament where we, where we get this information, where we find it occur in the New Testament. Schreiner argues that no other book besides the Johnine literature, so the books of John, um, employ the language of witness as much as the book of Acts. So, the point here is just because witnessing comes last in our order, it's chapter 7, um, last of the theological themes in Acts, it doesn't imply, even in the least, it doesn't imply it's, it's less important or it's the least important. In some ways, it may be one of the more important 
theological themes in Acts, and more important to understand when studying the book, because Acts is really the only place in the New Testament where we get this theme fleshed out for us in the narrative account of the early church. And so what Schreiner does in the chapter I think is pretty helpful. He, he just structures the chapter around questions. Um, the first being, what is witnessing? So what is it? Who witnesses in the book? And then where and how do they witness? So what, who, where, and how are the questions that kind of set up then the structure for the chapter. And we'll start with a what. So what is witnessing? Sorry, felt like I had to cough, but it never can. Okay. I want to start with just providing the definition that Schreiner gives in the book. He says, in Acts, to witness is to see and to tell of the life-giving presence of God found in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. To witness is to see and to tell, or you could say proclaim. To witness is to see and to proclaim of the life-giving presence of God found in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And we're going to break down really how he gets this definition. But first, we can think about the term witness and its, and its meaning. It's most popularly used, I think, now, maybe in the, in the legal realm. And in this sense, to be a witness means to tell of facts that the person has seen. Someone is a witness to a crime, or, or they're a witness in the courtroom. Again, meaning that the, being, the meaning being the person is telling of the facts, they're retelling of events they have seen, that they have witnessed. It's a pretty basic understanding. This is also a common use in uh, the biblical sense of the word. You can think of biblical civil law or ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical laws. So rules for Israel and then later rules for the church. Witnesses used in a similar way of recalling seeing an event. It's also used in now, like in the popular religious sense, as many Christians today use the, the term witness as a synonym for evangelism, which I think actually comes largely from the use of witness in the book of Acts. So Christians witness of Christ to non-believers. They, 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 they evangelize to them. And there's warrant, I think, to both of these uses in the book of Acts. But Schreiner's argument here is that the primary meaning of witness in Acts actually comes from the Old Testament, which I don't think it's, that should, should surprise none of us if we've been um, following through the book. Um, the, because Luke, the, the, the author of Acts, he constructs the book in a particular way. He, he has already incorporated and used many Old Testament concepts um, Old Testament fulfillment in Acts, so I would even go as far as to say that we should expect to see this, this Old Testament connection in the themes and the language that he's choosing to employ. Right? He's, as we've seen throughout the study, he's, he's using, using these words and these themes for a purpose, and that purpose is typically related to the Old Testament fulfillment of these themes and words. 
And specifically with this idea of witnessing, Schreiner uh, highlights for us or argues how we see these themes in both Exodus and Isaiah. I think it's other places in the Old Testament, but this is where he chooses to focus. And so in Exodus, we see the word and idea of testimony quite a bit, which can also be translated as witness. And it comes up, again, quite a bit. Specifically, we see it in reference to God's presence and to His law, where we could say His word. So in Exodus 25-22, we see that the ark is called the ark of the testimony. So this is the ark of the covenant. It's called the ark of the testimony. You could say that it's the ark of the witness. The idea here is the ark is where the presence of God resides. It's where it is in, in the tabernacle and the testimony of the ark testifies of that presence, testifies to the, to the covenantal presence of Yahweh with his old covenant people. Also, the Ten Commandments are called the two tables or, or the two tablets of testimony. Again, that word could, could literally be translated as witness, testimony written by the finger of God, so like, you see the focus on God's presence with His people and on God's law, the Ten Commandments, God's Word. And the witness here is actually God. God witnesses to His own presence in the tabernacle and, and over the, the Ten Commandments, His law, his, his positive Word, positive law for His Old Covenant people. And God has given His presence to His people in, in the covenant document, the, the Ten Commandments, and the, and the presence of God is life-giving to those who walk according to the law, to those who walk according to His covenantal law. So the people could be a, a witness then to Yahweh as they obey His law, as they, they picture Him, or you could say image Him, to the world around Israel, specifically the pagan nations surrounding Israel, right there, to live in right, that's, is, that's if they're obedient to the law, living in right fellowship with Him. Of course, we know, as the story unfolds, Israel fails miserably in this witness. They, they distort the understanding, their understanding of God with their, their sin, their perpetual propensity to idol worship, and they distort God with their sin and, and disobedience to the law. But the idea is that of testimony, the idea of witness, of, of God's presence, we see that it's there in Exodus. And Isaiah picks up these themes, and Schreiner, argue, he, he expounds on them a little bit. And probably more than, than Exodus, Luke is more specifically referring to Isaiah's understanding of what it means to be a witness. Though I, the point here is Schreiner is arguing that, that we can see these ideas in present, um, these ideas present in the book of Exodus. And so I've provided for you on the sheet there that this is the top chart. Um, there's a table of texts in Isaiah, specifically Isaiah um, 43 and 44, 
that used the idea and language of witness to refer to God's covenantal people and their role in relation to the surrounding pagan nations. And what we see is that Isaiah contrasts Israel with those pagan nations. So the nations worship a, a false gods, right? It refers to, them, refers to them as deaf and blind. They're not alive. They're not real. They're dumb. And so Israel, in contrast, serves as God's witness since they have been the chosen covenantal people to testify, to witness to his life-giving presence, to his eternal life-giving presence. And you can look more in detail at those passages yourself on, on the chart to get a better understanding or the evidence for the point. But, but the larger point Schreiner is making is that both in Exodus and Isaiah, God calls his people to witness to, to him or of him, specifically of his, of his presence, of his life-giving presence in creation, or you could say his covenantal presence with his people. And the function is Israel is to tell the surrounding nations they're to witness that there is no God like Yahweh. And the point for Acts is that Luke picks up on these themes as God calls his people to, to witness to God's abundant life. Or we could say that the same life-giving presence, but there is a big difference in Acts. And it's in the specificity or of what, or more correctly, of who is being witnessed about. So no longer are God's people to testify only to and of Yahweh and His presence and His law, but they're to witness of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. They're to witness of His life, His, his death, His resurrection, His ascension, and all the, the implications those realities bring on people. So just like we've seen throughout the Acts in this study, Jesus is central. He's central to everything. He's central to the message that the apostles testify and witness to. And specifically in Acts, there is a special attention given to the resurrection of Christ in the, in the witnessing we have recorded in Acts. So we see this in Acts one twenty two. When they're selecting another apostle to replace Judas, we read that one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter says in his Pentecost sermon, Acts 2.32, that God raised up Jesus and we, I think it's referring to the, to the apostles, are witnesses. See a similar pattern in Paul's speeches. But what we can say then is that the, the fundamental reality and truth that the apostles are witnesses of, and what they testify about is, is primarily the resurrection of Jesus. And, and then the massive implications, the massive significance that the resurrection has on everything, pretty much, literally everything. So again, we see that in Acts, to witness means to tell of the life-giving presence of God found now only in Jesus Christ. So that is what, what witnessing is. Before we go on to the other questions, um, pause here for any comments, questions.
All right, let's think of the who. Who is witnessing in Acts? And the first thing to say is something I've said implicitly so far this morning, and that is in Acts, the term witness is largely reserved for the 12 apostles. But one big point Schreiner is making here in this section is that just because that is true, that does not mean then that every other Christian is not a witness of Christ, because the apostles stand as representatives of the people of God as a whole. And Schreiner is going to make this point in a little bit. But by and large, the twelve apostles are who witness of Jesus' resurrection and the, the gospel message that, that follows. Which makes sense because these are the men that witnessed Jesus after his resurrection. And they spent time with him during his 40 days on earth before his ascension. And one thing that, that Schreiner points out, which is something we, we've already covered in the study, is that if we take Luke and Acts together as one document, we can see the, the apostles then function as a type of bridge between the life and ministry of Jesus, which is the, the, the gospel of Luke, and then the witness of the church, or the life of the church, which we have recorded for us in Acts. The, the apostles are a common deno denominator between both of those events, which are recorded for us in those two books. They're in both accounts. They're, they're vital in both. So again, this is really simple, but, but I think it makes sense. The apostles then are, are perfect candidates. They're perfect candidates to witness of Christ's work and the implications of it because they have lived with Jesus. They have seen the risen Christ physically. They've spent significant time with the risen Christ. And maybe more important than that, they have been made spiritually alive. They've been made spiritually alive, which we see this pretty clearly at the end of the Gospel of Luke, which you can turn there. So in Luke 24, Luke 24, verses 44 through 49, this is the famous account of Jesus appearing to his disciples on the, the Emmaus Road. And so in verses 44 through 49, we see why the, the apostles are uniquely qualified to be Jesus' witnesses, to be the proclaimers of their, their witness in the gospel. So I'll just read these verses. Then Jesus said to, him, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to, you, spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he, that, that's Jesus, opened there, that's the, the there, there, that's the disciples, opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, it's the Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. So notice here that the, the disciples have been spiritually enlightened. They have had their minds opened by Jesus to understand the truth of the fulfillment that Christ is in all of the scriptures. So the, they have 
been enlightened in their minds to understand the truths of Scripture. Therefore, they, they are to be his chosen witnesses of these things. They're the, you can think about they are the qualified candidates to proclaim the fulfillment of these truths. And this is what, again, this is just what happens in the book of Acts. This is what we see play out in real history, in the history of Acts. And also, as I've stated, so this is... Um, the, the, the number of apostles is also extremely significant, especially in regards to the apostles representing the whole of the church or representing the whole of the people of God. The number 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel, so as being the, the representatives of the, or the, the heads of the people of God in the Old Covenant. So though Acts focuses on the witness of the apostles rather than, say, the church at large, we can think of the apostles as the representative ideal characters whom the church is to, to emulate. This is what Schreiner means when, when he argues that the apostles function as, as the representatives of the church. So in the time of the writing of Acts, this makes sense really a lot of sense because they, they represented the church as their leaders. They had a unique leadership role as in the office of apostle where they represented the church. So I don't think we have to say only the apostles witness about Christ and his work, but they do have a unique firsthand way that does give them unique and I would say unparalleled authority in the history of the church. One clear example of this is that no one in this room should write a letter to a church that is then authoritative for all other churches for the rest of all time. That would be very bad and weird. So the apostles are unique because they can do that. They did do that, and we do follow those letters. Um, they're unique, especially in their authority, but as, as representatives of the church or, or models of what the church should do, and what, the, what Christians should be about, all Christians can, can, and I would say should, view themselves as in line with the apostles. Now, there are some significant people in Acts who aren't technically the 12, the original 12 apostles, but that are still called witnesses. Stephen, he's a Hellenized Jew, he's a witness. And then really, most importantly, Paul. Paul is called a witness. He's also called an apostle. Now, something that's worth noting is that both Stephen and Paul see the, the risen Jesus in the narrative of Acts. They see him just like the 12 disciples did. So I think that may play a big part in why they're, they're, they're called witnesses in the book of Acts. But if we examine Acts as a whole, which what, what we've been doing in this study, two witnesses really stand out or they, they receive the bulk of the t attention of the narrative. It's Peter and it's Paul. Peter and Paul. Peter's the first key witness to play a role in the book of Acts. And Peter probably in a, in a large way stands as a representative for the, the, the original 12 apostles in a lot of texts. Right? Many of the apostles join Peter or he has um, companions with him as he witnesses to various peoples and leaders. 
But later in the book, Paul, he's, he's a new witness, and he steps in on the scene. And in several places in Acts, we see that he is referred to as an authorized, or, or he's referred to as authorized to witness to all men. To witness to all men. And one of the big points Schreiner's making in this section of the book is that Paul is not viewed by Luke as inferior to the other apostles, which is significant because he's not part of the original 12. And he was actually, right, he, he persecuted the original 12. He persecuted the original church. So Luke um, brilliantly, I, I would say, um, writes Acts in such a way that would not leave any doubt that Paul is actually just as authoritative as Peter or any of the other apostles. Luke, again, even calls him and Barnabas apostles. But one way in the text that we see Luke emphasize how Paul is on equal standing with Peter and the other apostles is the close parallels recorded by Luke of their lives and their ministries and of their witnessing. And you can see that this is the second chart here on the sheet, the bottom chart. So Luke summarizes Peter's and Paul's miraculous deeds in a similar way. Both heal the lame, bring the dead to life, experience miracles of liberation, are involved in incidents with supernatural punishments, both of them um, quote Psalm 16. That's pretty a specific parallel. And the point is to show how Paul is in line and even has the same authority as Peter, which is really important if you think about the history of the church at the time. He is then the true witness. He's the authorized true witness to the ends of the earth. Another way to say the same thing is that these parallels, like laid out for you in the chart, they function to legitimize Paul's mission to the world. So just to summarize this, sunction, this section of, of who the witnesses are, they are specifically in Acts the original 12 apostles and Stephen and Paul. But all of them stand as, as representative figures of the entire church. But specifically for them, they've all seen, they've all witnessed the risen Lord They've all witnessed him. They've, 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 um, they then are the qualified ones that spread the, the life found in Jesus to people, to all people through their, their, their proclamation, through their telling, their witnessing of the gospel. This leads now to our, our final section of the where and the how of witnessing. But any questions, comments? Does someone have a chart? I don't have a chart. Is it in here? It, it probably is. I think it should be. Maybe not. But if it's not, I think it's the Pentecost sermon, Peter references Psalm 16, and I think it's Paul's sermon in Acts 13 that he also references the same text. It might be Acts 14.
Yeah, it would be the first one, the sermon. He didn't say the... Yeah. Okay. We're going to be done real early. But that's okay, we can fellowship and talk. So when we think about... Um, the where question of where did the apostles witness? The first thing to say is something we've, we've already talked about quite a bit. We've noted already how the apostles' mission is, is, you could think of it as an Israel first mission. As they were charged by Jesus to first go to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and finally then to the ends of the earth. So there's a successive nature to this progression. And we saw how the Gentile mission develops only after Israel has heard the message of, from the apostles. And so a, a big argument of the book, and something I've argued, is that we can see Acts broken up into these sections of the mission to, 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 the, to Jerusalem, to the Jews. That's Acts 1 through 7. Then Judea and Samaria, which is Acts 8 through 12. And then the ends of the earth, which is Acts 13 through 28. So those are kind of the three large sections that commentators have historically broken down the text. But one thing Schreiner hasn't pointed out until now, which I'm really glad he did, is that it's not the clearest progression, at least geographically, because take, for instance, Acts 8 through 12. It, it doesn't merely recount mission in Judea and Samaria, we see included Antioch, Syria, Damascus, and Jerusalem in those chapters. So you say, well, what's going on here? I think the, the answer Shriner puts forth in the book, I, I'm pretty convinced of. It's that Judea and Samaria can stand for a couple of things as, as a term. It can stand for the land of Israel, which that, which what was then Roman Syria would be included in that. So there's really two senses of the geographical term of Judea and Samaria. It can mean that the southern district of Palestine, which is distinct from Galilee. I should have had a map. My bad, guys. And more general use of the term encompassing all of Palestine. So this is kind of the two ways you could use the term when Luke was writing. Right? More specific of this region of the southern portion of uh, Israel in distinction from Galilee, or just the whole region of Palestine. And the point is, I think pretty still clear as we think about where the apostles witnessed. The gospel goes from the, the narrow Jerusalem, expands outward to the wider area called Judea and Samaria, which is kind of, I would argue, just all of that area of Palestine. The, the whole area covering the entire region. The last phrase, the ends of the earth, also is largely disputed, or there's a lot of debate about what exactly does that term mean, the ends of the earth. Some think, I would say the majority think it's referring to Rome in some way. Others think it's, it's something else. That, uh, there's quite a bit of, of early literature that refers to Rome as the ends of the earth. Schreiner points out one early geographer and historian refers to Spain as the ends of the earth. But the, the argument of the book, and 
many other good commentators that, that I consulted here agree that in Acts we should view Rome as a representative of the world or representative maybe of even the ends of the earth. So that means that the mission is not over when it reaches Rome, as we've already made clear because we see elsewhere in the New Testament that Paul wants to take the gospel further. But once the gospel reaches Rome and Acts, it's as if the gospel has reached the ends of the earth and that Rome is representing the whole world, at least in the times of the narrative. The simple point is the gospel still to this day has not reached the ends of the earth, right? Because there's still people groups, still like ethnicities that have never heard the gospel. They have never been witness to. So the gospel is still going to the ends of the earth, but in Acts, Rome is functioning as the, the representation of the ends of the earth, of the whole world, if that makes sense. So first, the, the question of where do the apostles witness in Acts? First, Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. And this leads to our, our last question of how do the apostles witness? How do the apostles witness? And we talked uh, quite a bit about kind of their, their proclamation of the word when we talked about the word of God and the message of salvation. So this section, I think that would fit under this section of how they witness or, or what they witness. But really Schreiner's main point in this section is that the apostles and their witnessing follow Jesus. They follow their Lord as suffering servants. So that language is coming from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 53. And we see this with the apostles as they witness not just in word, but they witness in deed. They, they follow their Lord not just in what they taught about the resurrection, not about what they witness with their eyes, although they do do that, that is necessary, 100% necessary, but they, they witness to him in the life they lived and what they endured, the, the suffering they endured, the, the persecution they endured, which was in line with um, their Savior, with Jesus. So they're following after, we can think of it this way, they're following after the true servant of Israel, Jesus Christ. And we see this language already on that, on that first chart, looking at Isaiah 43.10. Right, we, we, we read there, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. So Israel here is called uh, wit witnesses of Yahweh and the, the servant whom God has chosen so they may believe and understand that He is God. We know Christ, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of the servant passages in Isaiah. He is the true servant. He is... I think then we could say he is the, the true Israel. This is going to get more technical than I'm going to actually get into. But he is the true Israel, the true servant of God that we see is the suffering servant who suffers and dies for his people. This is what happens. He, he suffers, he dies for his people on, with his death on the cross and the, the, the massive persecution and suffering he faces. But the point here in Acts is there is a connection here between being a witness of God and being God's servant. We see that in Isaiah 
There's a connection here between that. And essentially the point Schreiner is making is that in Acts, what we see the apostles go through in their life, so think of their suffering, the, the persecution they face, the, 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 the martyrdom many of them face, it's in line with the suffering servant themes we see in the life and ministry of Christ and what was predicted in the book of Isaiah. So the apostles' suffering, their, their nonviolent responses to hostility, they mark them, when we read them, it marks them as in line with the Lord, as in line or following after the Lord Jesus. So how they witness is not just in words declaring they have seen the risen Lord, it's not just in all the theological implications that they explain in the fulfillment passages and the sermons that we have recorded for us in Acts, although it is all those things, but witnessing, witnessing in Acts is also done through their servant-like suffering as they follow in line with Jesus. So that's what he means by deeds, witnessing in deeds, or this is what we could say their deeds are, is to suffer and to face persecution and hostility and not respond in, in anger or violence or any of those ways. And so in the book, Schreiner gives a ton of evidence, which maybe I should have put in because we're about done, but I didn't. But there's a lot of linguistic evidence in the book. You can, if, you, if you're not convinced by it, um, I would encourage you to, to read that section of the book. Um, but we've already talked quite a bit about all of the events that he highlights in that section. But generally, we could say the apostles are, were persecuted. They were imprisoned falsely. They didn't retaliate with violence. Stephen died a death very much in line with, with Jesus and how, it was, and how it's recorded for us. Paul suffers greatly. He's persecuted on, on multiple occasions. He's stoned to death and then right, has that resurrection experience. Um, the big point here is the how of witnessing. The, to witness and acts is to act as a suffering servant or suffering servants following the true suffering servant. Not just with their words, but with their actions, with their deeds. Shrana writes, Christ's witnesses die but rise. They're shamed yet honored. They're castigated yet innocent. They walk into the lion's den, proclaiming the lordship of Jesus, knowing that even if they are not rescued, he will raise them on the last day. So I think, that, I think that's a really good way to put it. And I think it has many, a lot of direct implications on our lives. So next week, we're going to look at through the conclusion of the book that really, again, tries to bring home these seven themes practically in our life, in the life of the church, or just the, the Christian life generally. So I won't get fully into it here. But one big implication of how the apostles witnessed is it, it has implications, I think, to our own evangelism and our own view of mission and, and witnessing of the Lord's work is that we should also try to mirror the life of our Savior and the example of the apostles, willing to endure suffering and persecution without retali retaliation, um, 
and trusting in God to be our final vindicator. That is what, the, that is what we can see in the life of the apostles so clearly. Um, and I think it can be a great encouragement for the church today. And I would just say that that is the Christian way. This is a Christian way to live and to proclaim the gospel, willing to endure suffering as our Savior did. I'll pause here. Any final questions or comments? That's exactly right. Yes. So the, because they had laid the foundation for the church, which I'd say then is canonized for us in the Word of God, we don't need to go further ever than what we have for us in the Scriptures. That is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so now how we witness is by pointing to the Bible and saying, this is what the Bible says. This is the Word of God. Believe it. So yeah, that's 100% right. And a good clarification. Rob? Okay, so we have ended 10 minutes early, which is good. Now we can talk. Um, you guys, next week, again, we're going to conclude this series um, and talk about the, I think it, there's a conclusion, I can't remember the name of the conclusion of the book, but there's a conclusion of the book, and we'll talk through that. Um, but you guys are dismissed.